0: African music activists.
1: I mean, students who are doing African music, other students kind of look down at them, they say it's not as prestigious as doing jazz or doing opera, but I challenge that.
0: This time, Patricia Opondo.
1: It's not about what you write on the staff and what you put in words, it's what you create, the emotions, the spirituality, the aesthetics, and those are things
0: you can only learn from a performer. Hello, I'm Bodina McConaughey, and welcome to this edition of African Music Activists, the podcast where we meet some of the continent's most important musicians. Important not just because of the music they make, but because of their contribution to keeping traditional African music alive, evolving, and above all, heard. Today's African music activist is Dr. Patricia Apondo. She's currently a senior lecturer of African music and dance and applied ethnomusicology at the University of KwaZulu-Natal School of Arts. While all our activists are teachers in one way or another, Patricia has devoted her life to traditional African music education and to creating the next generation of performers and teachers. These are some of her students playing at their end-of-year recital in 2020. In fact, all our music today is taken from those recitals, so you can hear firsthand some of the results of her inspirational teaching. Patricia was born in Kenya and went to school in Nairobi and Mombasa. She was always interested in music and studied piano and voice, eventually getting a degree in music education. Growing up, she was learning mainly in the Western tradition. But, she says, during the holidays, she'd go into the Bomas and listen to African music and try to learn traditional instruments and dances. She was captivated by the music of this continent and decided to follow her passion, which, ironically, took her away from Africa to America, to the University of Pittsburgh, where she obtained her master's and then her PhD. I talked to Patricia and started by asking her, At what stage she made the decision to choose between teaching and performing?
1: So I've always been a performer and we particularly enjoyed the music festivals and would get lots and lots of certificates. So there's something special in, in doing that. Of course, I had a few private piano students, but the teaching didn't really happen until my undergrad years. You know, at that point, I mean, I realized when I was in America that the level of performance is at a totally different level. And I also wanted to follow a track that that I could come back and use in Kenya, so I figured you know, music education would be good, and then I'd have the certification from primary school all through high school, so that was why I chose that. And then when I did my student teaching, I absolutely, absolutely loved it, and I did a little bit of both. I did some traditional music, or we called it folk music, and um, Western music. So the schools where I taught at, we did a little concert and we'd always have a few African pieces. And then while I was an undergraduate, I was in a community of African immigrants. So there was an ensemble at the University of Pittsburgh. So I started dancing with them. So I'll teach them some Kenyan songs and dances. And that's why I learned a lot of repertoire from Ghana first. And that's why I learned to, to play the Ghanaian Pandogo drum. And Most of the members in the group were from the DRC. So I I got to collaborate with really outstanding immigrant musicians in Pittsburgh. And then we formed a company called the Moja African Dance Company. So we used to do workshops throughout the district and we do a lot of concerts. So I actually became a stronger performer um, performing during my college years in, in America with other African immigrants. And that's where the the real love, I think, um, flourished.
0: So you went over to Pittsburgh um, in the US. Why did you do that? Does that tell us something about the um, state of the study of uh, traditional African music in Africa?
1: Well, the best person to study with is Professor Nketiah himself. So, you know, when I was looking for places, I didn't have to look too far. I did apply to other colleges. But once I got accepted into the ethnomusicology program at Pittsburgh, it was a huge shift from music education to ethnomusicology. Um, And Pittsburgh has a huge, lovely reputation in terms of African music, jazz, and Chinese music. So I was in a really you know, where there's strong scholarship and strong performance
0: and really great ensembles. What do you think the state of um, postgraduate African studies was in Africa at the time that you left? There weren't that
1: many possibilities. I found even when I was doing the Western Classical, you know, we'd have to have extra piano lessons because, you know, your teacher was like one grade ahead of you. So, and pretty much as students would teach ourselves, so someone were like, okay, so who knows a folk song from the ethnic group? Who knows this? And let's put it together and we we just co-create together. So that spirit of just creating within an idiom was actually planted in during the high school years. And then when I was in Pittsburgh, because we'd have to rehearse repertoire and people would come in and bring ideas and it was more of a Pan-African ensemble. So it also gave a really nice platform to, Mm. to grow, grow creatively. So did that in any
0: way inspire you to improve the teaching in Africa? When I was six
1: months to finishing my PhD, I was looking for jobs. At that point, I wanted to leave America. So I I did look for one. I did apply to one university in America, but I then also saw saw this job advert in University of Natal in Durban. So that's how I applied for the position.
0: Okay. And then that's when you... I wanted
1: to come... I mean, I really wanted to come back and work and live in Africa.
0: Okay. So there you pioneered this amazing undergraduate African music and dance course. What were the issues involved in integrating traditional African music into, a well, what was a Western academic music department?
1: Yeah, um, when I came, I found there was a quite a vibrant African music ensemble run by um, Jeff Tracy. So people weren't totally in the dark, you know, and he was playing a lot of instruments he'd learned from his father. My task was actually now to develop a curriculum where people could actually major in that. So the, the bigger challenge um, was to now think of the content. Where am I gonna get the specialist teachers? You know, what are the resources available in KwaZulu-Natal? So I spent, you know, the initial three months just traveling and trying to to find these specialist instruments And then I found there was actually a very few instruments in KwaZulu-Natal except for the bows. Mm. And so I went around trying to find good bow teachers. Then I read Dargy's research and I found out this is a brother, Clement Sitole. So I had to find out where he was and try and find, anyway, so it was through that, that experience of discovery. And when I came, there was already a diploma in music performance in jazz. So I pretty much... Used the structure that they had in place. And then I tweaked it based on what I felt would enrich African music and dance. They already had a a vision. So I didn't have to create that. The only challenge is from the start, I had to do a lot of fundraising. And at least the good thing when I was in Pittsburgh, I was doing the fundraising for Moja. So the skills I actually learned in the community is what really helped me survive. So I only had seed money. So, you know, new in South Africa, that was the hardest part, but I guess it was it was a good lesson because I then learned how to survive. And if I really want something, I need to actually get And I was lucky. I was lucky that with each application, I was successful.
0: Very successful because your courses are increasing in popularity all the time. What do you think the reasons are for that? I do a lot of advocacy work. And I think
1: when I first came, I, even till now, I mean, students who are doing African music, other students kind of look down at them, they say, you know, it's not as it's not as prestigious as doing jazz or doing opera. But but I challenge, I challenge that. And um I created a performing ensemble, and we travel, literally travel the world. And I think by people seeing that the world is actually interested in indigenous music and how well the students would do, of course we have to work quite hard to do our costuming and the choreography, but but I realise again from my experience in the module by having a lot of public performances, people then can start to appreciate that, and students love being on stage, and then also part of the advocacy is just about your African identity. You know, I said, well, I grew up doing both. So there's room, there's room for that. And I guess because I had a PhD in it, you know, it inspired quite a few others. And then when I created the curriculum, I made it quite diverse. So they don't do one instrument for three years. So each semester they learn something new. So we start with Ngoma Dance, then move to Gambu Dance, then we move to Makwayana Bow, and we moved to Timbila Xylophone from Mozambique. Then in the third year, they learn Dambira from Zimbabwe and they learn maskanda guitar or palm wine guitar. So we have a good graduation rate. And then students actually promote the program. They say they learn more than just African music. They learn life skills, fundraising, documentation. So the students are actually our biggest ambassadors as well.
0: Actually, both Dizu and Andrew said that um, a lot of modern urban African people really aren't interested in traditional African music. And and in fact, they look down on that. What what is your response to that statement?
1: Well, um, it depends. In KwaZulu-Natal, because
0: in Kezudan,
1: Zulu heritage is something something that's celebrated very vibrantly. So I think I picked the right province or serendipity. So working in KwaZulu-Natal made, made my life easy um, because a lot of people have grown up performing in these rituals. A lot of them still have a farm or a grandmother or all, all of them. When they, they come of age, if it's the girls, they go through memulo, they go through all those ceremonies. So being in KZN really made a difference. But if I compare it with um, Kenya, it's the same thing. I mean, till today, people are like, but why are you so interested in African music? You could do something else, you know? Yeah. I said, well, so I mean, then, that's my bigger vision. I want to actually come back and, and, and contribute some kind of a revival in, in Kenya so that there's, so we have a lot more younger people wanting to be indigenous instrumentalists, dancers, singers, yeah.
0: So Patricia, Vinancio Mbande Jr., who is also one of the African music activists that I've interviewed, says that the key to keeping traditional African music alive and evolving is the teaching in schools. Do you agree with Venancio that um, teaching African music in schools is important? Of course. I've done some teacher and service training, but I think
1: they did really well. They'd come to me once a week, we train them for a 12 weeks, and then they'd go back, and but they were all doing it as an extracurricular. So I think until you have specialist teachers in the school actually, you know, full-time teaching teaching mm-hmm. African music, I'm not sure how much change we can affect. And even the two who are part of the music specialist teaching, they, they, they feel very frustrated because they say the way the performance is being assessed, they, they just find that there are lots of problems. So I think Once the structures are in place, then maybe I can answer that better, Mm. and maybe there'd be more success with what's happening in the schools. But the students themselves absolutely love the experience with our student teachers and with those who are
0: currently teaching at the moment. What keeps you up at night what worries you about what we do
1: sustainability i mean it's a lot of work it's a lot of sacrifice it's a lot of time and it's discouraging a lot of people don't have that the you know they've got other competing things for their time so they always say oh we never want to be like you doc because you work too hard and it doesn't end so it's about the sustainability you know i've been trying to fight for a second position Because I think if you're at least two of you in an institution, you can find a way to share the load. Mm. So for example, in jazz, we have three full-time and we have another six part-time, you know, and it's the same in opera. So I think once our institutions realize, you know, understand that you can't just work one person today, you know, because then what's going to happen when that person leaves? So I've been (laughs) saying for years, I need to hand over. I And it's not something I can just sit and write a book and a list. You know, this is how you run the project. Because a lot of it has has to do with heart, has to do with attitude, has to do with commitment. So it's somebody who has to actually, you know, you have to shadow someone for them to see, well, this is how you actually get to put this ensemble together and this is what it takes. So that's my worry.
0: If you could say anything to the Department of uh, Further Education, what, what would that be? Well, many things. Um, I think the first thing
1: that we need to actually find ways to accredit these performers who are teachers, performer teachers, um, because I think we need to have a lot more of them into the, in the institutions. Our institutions are now moving towards you have to have a PhD, to be on the staff or at least the masters and none of my performers have that so i'd lose a lot i'd lose really what the energy is and the vision behind what i created so it's for them to really acknowledge that there are other systems to measure and to integrate and to keep african music vibrant because it's not about what you write on the staff and what you put in words. It's what you create, the emotions, the spirituality, the aesthetics. And those are things you can only learn from a performer. You can't learn from a textbook. So I think my students are very lucky and I'd like other institutions to have the same privilege of having community artists as their teachers and as their mentors. So I know I could never be like those teachers because it's generations. They're not just picking it up now, you know, as a hobby as I'm going to do. It's something that's been passed on to them and they're passing on. So for me, it's for the Department of Education to know, to, to, recognize those are the teachers we really need, who are custodians of tradition, who are good pedagogues, who have a passion for teaching and transmitting, and then find a place for them, not only in the universities, but in the schools too.
0: Patricia, do you ever think that African music is going to be valued as much as Western music is?
1: I really think so. I really honestly think so. And I think just when I even see, you know, La, we've just recently lost uh, Svongile. But what, what really touched us about is, is that she encompassed everything. And what she did so beautifully was how she integrated African music in what she's doing. So she's a role model to a bunch of opera singers and jazz singers and people who want to. And I can say, even within our, our own jazz students, I mean, those who sing in mother tongue and uh, having indigenous inflections. So, so I think once they have enough models and if these role models who are out there embrace more of the tradition, it's gonna happen. It's going to happen because those who are standing out are those who have something unique to offer. I think the damage is done in the primary and high schools where people negate what is African and what is beautiful. And I think if we have enough people who have art centers where you're actually bringing in indigenous artists to create and um, people can actually see that. You know, now with everything digital, we just have to flood the market with indigenous <laughs> music and it's better now. now is the best time because everyone's glued to their phone and TV and they love what's unique, what they don't see every day. They're tired of the soap opera. I don't even know who watches soap operas anymore. So some of the vision, I guess, answering that other question better is, is to get more of our stuff online mm. and accessible. So, you know, we're going to create a revival and I think if you're doing that, it's in Grahamstown, and I'm doing this here, and Diesel's doing this, and you know, and whoever else slowly because you can't do it as one person, you really need, and we need to talk together, I think, a lot more.
0: What are your thoughts about the future of uh, traditional African music, performance and teaching? Are you optimistic? Actually, I am. Performance, yes, because there are lots of public
1: spaces. I mean, as I say, we tour. I see a lot of groups traveling. Of course, now with COVID, that comes to an end. So let's say post-COVID, then, you know, once the performance venues reopen and people can travel, because I think performance is what keeps the tradition alive. I mean, when I think of how we run our rehearsals, because with each year when I have a new group, we create new repertoire. So and one of the things, my third year students have to present a 45 minute public recital and half of the program has to be their own original creations. So I can just say by the quality I see at the exit recitals, I'm really excited to see what the future holds in terms of performance. Hmm. In terms of education, I think more universities are offering African music. And I think if we put our heads together, because we're we're not that many, and we try to improve and assess each other's work and give advice to each other on how we can how we can grow, I think that'll be better. And if we can maybe try and have exchange programs with it, you know, so our students can actually perform together or see each other's work, that would be great. And then as I mentioned, if If we can think of a larger research project to actually document and archive all these practices and just do that systematically, I think that'll help. And then find a way to integrate the research into the teaching. Because, you know, I, I find it's a hard thing just trying to get the students excited about that research is something that you can do, it's not something that those professors do out there. So I think for the future, you know, we need to make research accessible and empower students so that they can actually go out and document things on their own and, and then we can integrate that into the curriculum.
0: Thank you for listening to this edition of African Music Activists. To find the other podcasts in this series and to subscribe for free, search for African Music Activists wherever you get your podcasts. This is an ILAM production in association with the Mellon Foundation's Unsettling Paradigms multi-university project and with further support from the Africa Multiple Cluster of Excellence at the University of Bayreuth funded by DFG, the German Research Foundation.